Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have Marco Erling, who's an assistant, adjunct assistant professor in the Department of uh, Hemopathology at the MDACC. This is uh, part of the University of Leipzig in Germany. They also have an affiliation with MD Anderson in Houston, you know, the famous cancer center. And we're going to talk about uh, his work in immunology and cancer. So, Marco, thank you for coming. Thank you very much, Richard. I'm happy to answer your question and to provide insights into the research we do mainly focused on T-cell prolymphocytic leukemia. So this kind of leukemia, is it a rare kind? I haven't heard of it, or is it uh, pretty pretty common? It is, to be quite frank, very rare. In Western countries, the incidences are quite low, and we speak about one to two in one million inhabitants per year, which is an incidence where the United States and, and European countries are pretty much equal. And that's why in the on the radar of patients, it is, of course, not a very well-known disease, unlike lung cancer or GI cancer. But also physicians struggle with correctly diagnosing it, as well as um, assigning patients to the correct type of treatment. Even large volume academic centers, usually university hospitals, have small cohort sizes in their collections where they analyze systematically how these patients had been doing struggle. And that's why, and this is going to be a, a big point today, I guess, networking, international networking is, is of the essence in order to make progress in this disease. Well, why have you chosen to work on this condition uh, instead of other cancers that are maybe more prevalent? Or is this one particularly serious or incurable? Or what's, what attracts you to it? Yeah. So when you, I was a young fellow and started my, my clinical work, I knew it, it was something that bridges immunology and hematology oncology. And therefore, I was particularly interested in investigating, understanding primarily cancers that arise from lymphocytes. Lymphocytes are cells of our immune system, and you can distinguish them between T cells and B cells. B cell derived uh, neoplasms, B cell lymphomas, B cell leukemias are more common than T cell derived leukemias and lymphomas. And in addition, the T cell derived cancers are as a group, much more heterogeneous. We distinguish about 25 to 30 WHO recognized entities. And when I was at that stage where I wanted some focus of my scientific and eventually also clinical work, I decided to look at these T-cell cancers. And one disease in particular struck me that was T-cell prolymphocytic leukemia, which back at the time in the early 2000s, we 
still treated with chemotherapy with very, very poor outcomes, very poor responses. And we started treating these patients with a monoclonal antibody called alemtuzumab or mapcampath and saw very encouraging response rates, but discouraging durations of these remissions. And overall, T-cell prolymphocytic leukemia had been, still is a poor prognostic disease. And that particularly sparked my interest in committing myself, my scientific and uh, clinical work to this disease and patients with this disease. So no, there's, of course, it could have been much easier uh, committing myself to much more common cancers, but this disease struck me, as I said, as a T-cell disease where I became interested in primarily in understanding first and, and later on also in how to better treat patients with TPLL. So how do um, leukemias manifest versus uh, solid tumors? Mm-hmm. What does it look like in the blood? Like, how do you know that someone has cancer and, and like, you know, the tumors in the blood or what does it look like? So any patient with a tumor can present in very, very different, various ways. And a patient that seeks out the doctor for very unspecific symptoms like fatigue or night sweats or swollen lymph nodes, being pale due to an anemia or so forth, can be, for example, diagnosed with a variety of diseases, including leukemia or lymphoma. And and I was, or I am often asked, what is in fact the difference between a leukemia and a lymphoma? And to some degree, that is arbitrary. The Most people use the term lymphoma for a neoplastic disease, meaning a malignant disease, a cancer that derives from cells of the lymph node from T or B or NK cells. And uh, lymphoma is characterized by, by manifestations of the disease in lymph nodes, spleen, or other sites, for example, skin. Whereas a leukemia primarily presents itself in the peripheral blood and in the bone marrow. So TPLL, T-cell prolymphocytic leukemia, is a term that was coined under the pretty much according to the impression these cells make under the microscope. And when it was firstly described in 1973, people coined the term T-cell chronic lymphocytic leukemia, TCLL, because at that time they already knew a B-CLL. And that point they were able to distinguish the T versus the B cell phenotype. Over the years, we uh, advocated to change the terminology to TPLL as the cells looked a bit more immature under the microscope, had certain features that we called them more pro-lymphocytic. And we wanted to make sure that general practitioners don't confuse the term TCLL with implicating something indolent, chronically growing, because this is what's not the case in TPLL. TPLL is usually a quickly, rapidly growing disease. And in order not to implicate an indolent, chronic, slow growing course, as it is typical for BCLL, we coined the term TPLL to make the practicing oncologist, hematologist aware of the rather aggressive nature of the disease. How do you think this condition starts and you know what are the you know what are the mechanics of it? How does it work? 
How does the mm-hmm. cancer uh, occur? That is a very interesting question because there are several models or, or theories around this. We do know that the first hits, the first genetic lesion that sets in motion a series of subsequent transforming steps pretty much takes place at the stage where this T-cell that is affected is still a thymus, a thymic T-cell, so early in its physiological development. And this oncogene called T-cell leukemia 1, TCL1, is usually under normal circumstances to be shut down when the thymic T-cell in our physiological T-cell development as young humans and during adolescence, we have pretty much finished our T-cell development and have pretty much established a broad repertoire of T-cells that are ready to defend the body against foreign invasions by fungi, bacteria, or viruses. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click on support us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. And a genetic, genetic accident that prevents the shutdown of this T-cell leukemia 1 oncogene which you see as a chromosomal translocation affecting the chromosome 14. It's either an inversion 14 or a translocation 1414. This breakage and rearrangement of pieces of DNA prevents the physiological silencing of this normally developmentally regulated oncogene. So it's not shut down. And this affected T-cell carries a gene now that is not being shut down and that is constantly overexpressed in the cell, and it prevents it from dying, and it subtly uh, persuades the cell to accumulate and to amplify its growth stimuli that it gets from the outside. So this affected T cell has an advantage over other T cells that are not affected by this accident. And this accident perpetuates subsequent steps that involve other lesions of other genes like the one ataxia telangiectasia mutated gene that amplifies uh, the the chromosome instability of these uh, tumor cells. And this is a kind of a self-perpetuating sequence of genetic accidents all the way to full transformation of a totally out-of-control tumor cell. Now, Does this initial step occur when we are young or does this occur when we are older in so-called recent thymic immigrants that people have discovered still being present when we are older is the open question that we still have not answered because TPLL is typically a disease of the elderly. The median age at diagnosis is about 65 years. 
So research still has to be done. What are the origins? How long does it take to develop fully overt TPLL? Are there precursor lesions that can be detected and maybe earlier eliminated? And what we see, TPLL diagnosis by coincidence, and these are often done when the patient is totally asymptomatic. The patient, not even being a patient, a normal individual goes to the doctor for, let's say, a cholesterol check, and the doctor discovers an abnormal white blood cell count, and the patient has now no symptoms. And uh, these so-called inactive stages of the disease distinguish themselves from the active stages of the disease. However, inevitably, within two years, maximum three years, these inactive stages, which we discovered in about 20% of TPLL patients, inevitably, they transform in the rapidly exponentially growing phase of that is so typical for the 80% of the patients when they are diagnosed. Interestingly, the underlying T-cell is functionally rather inert. It is a T-helper memory kind of cell, which pretty much is under normal circumstances to be ready for an invasion of of fungi, viral um, agents, or bacteria, and sets in motion a memory reaction to eliminate uh, this infectious invasion. However, it does not only helps in this immune defense, and the TPLL tumor cell pretty much keeps that function. So it is not an autoaggressive or cytokine-releasing, fever-causing, or pruritically active meaning doesn't Call, cause any itching or other, other highly unpleasant symptoms. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. So the tumor mass of TPLL pretty much makes the symptoms. So the invasion of organs like the spleen, the invasion of the bone marrow now outcompeting normal hematopoiesis, meaning the formation of blood cells in the bone marrow. And the patients usually with their fatigue or signs of bleeding or infections, pretty much this is caused by the indirect indirect effect of the tumor cell invasion in the bone marrow. So per se, the tumor cell is a rather inert T cell in contrast to other T cell leukemias like TLGL, or the Cesare syndrome, where the underlying T-cell, tumor T-cells, tumorous T-cells are rather active and attack. What does it look like? So you have lymphomas in the various lymph nodes. Are there other tumors that appear? And how many tumors appear? Does it spread to a whole bunch of lymph nodes? Does it have preferential ones that exist? Yeah. Initial presentation of TPLL is usually by a a high white blood cell count. We call it lymphocytosis. So the peripheral blood counts in terms of the leukocytes and a major components of the leukocytes are the lymphocytes. They are elevated and at levels that are abnormally high. And often you can tell the diagnosis by these abnormally high white blood cell counts. And these tumor cells also infiltrate the bone marrow and cause the outcompetition of the cells in the bone marrow. So you have also cytopenias, meaning lowering of cell counts of platelets or red blood cell counts, causing anemia 
in addition to the lymphocytosis. And the another feature very often found in about 80% of TPLL patients is the splenomegaly, enlargement of the spleen by the infiltrating TPLL cells. And often in about 20%, you see skin infiltrations of various morphology and, and uh, patterns, often in, in the trunk of the patients or in, in the facial areas, and also effusions, meaning liquid collections in, in lungs in the abdominal cavity. As for lymph nodes, the lymph nodes are often involved, but not very prominently swollen in contrast to other lymphomas. So the lymph node enlargement in TPLL is rather subtle in most of the cases, but you find it in CT scan in about 50-50%. So if this is the genetic abnormality, and that's supposedly where it comes from, why would it come out in people after, you know, they've been alive for 50, 60, 70 years? What do you think is happening? You know, how is aging causing this to be a problem when it wasn't a problem for them when they were younger, let's say? Yeah, so we are back to these two theories of when TPLL arises. Uh, as we know, it is a disease of the elderly. There's only one exception, individuals affected by germline mutations of the ATM tumor suppressor gene. Uh, they develop juvenile TPLL, if you will, at the age between 20 and 25 and, but this is, this is an extreme rarity. So the sporadic TPLL has a, at diagnosis has a median age of about 65 years. Now, the initial genetic hit of the TCL1 rearrangement, has it occurred when we were younger in our early teens or twenties? Or has it occurred when we were 40, 50? This we still don't know. Are there any proven epidemiological links? to certain lifestyles and and habits, smoking or professional exposures. This is at the moment all empty. So to say, we, we have not found uh, causal links. However, our series that investigate such epidemiological associations are small. Now, we have prospective nationwide TPLL registry, which I am heading, and there we now have reached uh, cohort sizes about, of about 200 patients and plus, and we hope that in this collection we could establish such links with the factors I just mentioned. And maybe at the international level, we even need to join forces and join many of these national efforts on TPLL uh, patients in order to carve out what might be causal factors underlying the development of the disease. So far, we have not identified certain lifestyle risk factors or professional exposures or things like this. Yeah, you need to get a significant number of people and interview them and uh, see if something happened in their life exactly. that maybe would correlate yeah. with the starting, you know. So there's also no have international not found... uh, effort. There's no, like, there's no international uh, organization or effort that's looking at all the people and asking them to come forward? Not really. I mean... Nowadays, with modern media, it is easier for patients to associate themselves in Facebook groups and using patient organizations under a larger umbrella, such as those with lymphoma or leukemia. However, something that is particularly committed to TPLL, 
I am aware of certain initiatives like Facebook groups at the international or national level. We have research efforts, research consortia at the European level that fund our uh, research. And of course, since I had been at the MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston for five, five and a half years and where I established a collection of TPLL biomaterial and linked clinical data, which has, n- has now been carried on by others. I have this network with, of researchers with whom we are in constant exchange and know what each group does, but it's a handful, let's say, or two hands full of international, at the international level, of researchers who commit to that disease. So knowing that there's a large clinical need in such a devastating disease and that you only have two hands full of, of, of people really committing their, their work to it tells you that, that we still have a long way to go. But the zeitgeist, pretty much the, the spirit of doing this research at the exclusively national or even individual level, these times are over. The researchers now network much better than they used to about 20 years ago. So this is something that encourages me that we will do better in the future in this disease. And a good example is is a clinical trial that was sponsored by the company AbbVie with uh, a compound many people know, Venetoclax plus Ibrutinib, that had been uh, recruiting at the international level through um, several continents, North America, Europe, and Australia. So this is uh, highly encouraging that now we left these monocentric or national trial efforts that had recruited for, for many, many years. Now we hope to continue with such international trials in many, many centers and recruitment times probably will be less than three years in order to have first results about what might be more promising treatments. Well, if you don't uh, prescribe or give medical advice, why don't you either create or lurk in the various Facebook groups so you can gather a lot of anecdotal you know, evidence from patients that might inform the research? That seems to be like a good idea. Yes, in theory, that is. And I often kind of connect and, and leave once in a while some comments where I think it is appropriate and, and necessary or uh, leave hints towards novel discoveries or novel trials. You can also link to the Hurling Lab, easily found a website where I update the community, including patients, on, on our ongoing research and new findings. But Issues of data protection and uh, ethics will, of course, not allow neither me or any other researcher to just retrieve data in an anecdotal or systematic way from people who have not given their informed consent and just by dialing in anonymously or with, with fully declared name in Facebook groups. This is not something that any ethics committee if you want to publish these results, for example, would uh, allow you to do. Well, I know, but if it, if it quietly guides your research, you know, it could be very helpful. Yeah. I'm not yeah. saying publish it or anything, you know, you keep it anonymous, whatever, but uh, the disease seems to be so mysterious. You may need that help. Yeah. You know, from anecdotes to see what, uh, you know, how it translates yeah. to the research. 
platforms like these, like this podcast, I see as a primer of, of a future series of, of events where I myself and my fellow colleagues doing research in TPLL might just join forces together with patients and listen to what their concerns are and maybe rally physicians, researchers, and patients in order to convince pharmaceutical companies to sponsor clinical trials, because that is the eye of the needle at the moment. TPLL is nothing a major drug company is very interested in, because um, if you do an expensive multi-center clinical trial, you invest a lot. And even though there's no approved, officially approved substance in TPLL, in order to get one that has convincingly good data, a pharmaceutical company would have to invest a lot. But it's such a small disease, they think twice doing this because once the substance might be approved, the marketing potential and the, the regain might be low and not as promising. So that's why we should join forces, patients, researchers, clinicians, and convince drug companies to invest in such an understudied disease with a, with a high clinical need of novel treatments. Yeah, a few more uh, technical questions about it. You said that um, it seems to respond well to monoclonal antibodies, but then it uh, there's a very, very high rate of it coming back, I guess, of recidivism. And you also said that it's extremely heterogeneous. So what do you mean by heterogeneous? What's more heterogeneous about it versus, let's say, other cancers that are similar? What I meant by heterogeneous was that T-cell leukemias, lymphomas in general as a group are heterogeneous, making being composed of about 25 to 30 uh, recognized entities. TPLL is one of these 25 to 30 subsets of T-cell lymphomas, and T-cell lymphomas per se are rare only 20% of all lymphomas, maybe even less, 15 to 20%. And TPLL is just a small fraction of these already rare tumors. So you have a heterogeneous group of tumors. And as part of this group, TPLL is one rather uniform entity. The challenge is to recognize it and diagnose diagnose it correctly. And once you have the diagnosis, then pretty much First treatment of choice is intravenous, not subcutaneous, because subcutaneous application of the antibody has proven not to be as efficient. Intravenous application of alemtuzumab, usually three times a week after a run-in phase that I recommend to be done in an inpatient setting. And after you have dosed it up, you go up for about 12 weeks of intravenous alemtuzumab three times a week. And the overall response rates following this application of alemtuzumab, they range between 85 to 95%. Now, do they last long? Unfortunately not. Therefore, if the patient is fit enough for a so-called allogeneic stem cell transplantation, which is lending a new immune and hematopoietic system from a foreign donor, you should consolidate that good initial response following alemtuzumab by an allogeneic stem cell transplantation. If the patient is not fit enough for this procedure, you do a watch and wait strategy, and usually the disease returns within the median of 12 months. 
some earlier, some later. And then the rather experimental phase begins. Usually physicians tend to give chemotherapy, either as a polychemotherapy combination, fludarabine, cyclophosphamide, or metoxantrone, or single agents like bendamustin, or if available, include patients into a clinical trial with novel substances or substance combinations. But as of today, the only realistic chance of conferring long-term survival to a patient with TPLL is to get her or him in first complete remission by alemtuzumab, 12 weeks, have a little break of about four to six weeks, and then consolidate that success by an allogeneic stem cell transplantation and hope that the so-called graft-versus-leukemia effect, meaning the transplanted T-cells recognize the TPLL cells that might have been left in the host as foreign and attack and destroy it. Okay. Are there any uh, protocols that are kind of under study right now or in process that uh, appear to be able to address this condition more effectively than what's going on right now? Yes. I have recently published an overview on what are currently ongoing trials in TPLL. The, the paper is hijacking the pathway and Together with my colleague, Linus Warnschaffe, we summarized their ongoing and promising early phase preclinical and clinical studies in TPLL. And on a global view, there is to be mentioned the combination of venetoclax plus ibrutinib, the trial that I mentioned by sponsored by APVI and this trial is on hold because it still has to prove efficacy. This is an implemented step in order not to treat further patients with an inefficient therapy. So we have to see what these activity data reveal. And there is a trial that investigates alemtuzumab combined with itacitinib, a JAK inhibitor active at the MD Anderson Cancer Center. And there and I hope I can convince the companies behind the compound called Tinostamustin, which is a combination of bendamustin covalently linked to an HDEC inhibitor. Very, very impressive activity in the cell culture dish and in TPLL murine models. And I hope to convince the company that this is a very potent substance in TPLL to be investigated clinically. And that there's a phase two trial the company is rolling out soon with an MDM2 inhibitor plus a BCL2 inhibitor in uh, TPLL patients that are have relapsed or are refractory to alemtuzumab. Here, I also convince the company to investigate this on a more global scale, not just in a few selected centers, because there I envision problems in the recruitment. The principle of investigating MDM2 inhibition is based on our discovery that this represents a central vulnerability of the TPLL cell, and it undergoes cell death when you expose it to MDM2 inhibitors. So there are activities but for my taste, still not enough. And I see the hesitation of companies to invest majorly in this disease. Well, very 
good. Marcos, what's the best way for people to find out more about your work and um, yeah, about the condition itself? Where can they go? Yeah. So, of course, to my um, laboratory webpage, https colon slash slash hurlinglab.com. But I, once in a while, I visit the international TPLL, you are not alone, Facebook site and provide links to novel papers, novel investigations, novel trials. We also have two major research consortia, but they are EU-based, European-based. The uh, one is called ERANET TPLL and the other one is called Jakstat Target. Both are consortia that deal with TPLL and novel, designing novel compounds. The When you Google Jakstat Target or ERANET TPLL, you find this and they have Twitter accounts and we provide the community with, with news uh, on our findings. And I hope as another basis of, of spreading the information that in formats like this uh, podcast or providing Q&A sessions with patients that can be recorded and uh, broadcasted on YouTube where I'm willing to give slide presentations and comment on questions that are pre-collected or spontaneously asked to get the message across what is uh, the nature of the disease, what can you expect, what should you ask your doctors, what is the secret behind why we don't have as many trials as in other diseases, and of course, what's behind certain hypes or is there realistic hopes uh, related to CAR T-cell therapies or other immune modulating or cellular therapies that, that are so successful in other cancers, what can be expected in this field uh, in TPLL? All these things um, I'm happy to answer in, in follow-up events like this. Very good. Well, Marcos, thank you for coming on the podcast and you know, thank you for your attention to a condition that, even though it's rare, is very serious and the people that have it do need help with it. So. I appreciate you being here on the podcast. Thank you, Richard. And also uh, thank you for, for being such a great host. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.